calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Ryan McCaffrey from IGN. Welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where we sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. This month, my guests, plural, are John Brooke and Lee Singleton, the co-heads of studio at Square Enix External Studios. They are heading up the Outriders new release, new IP this fall coming to the new consoles, the current ones, and PC as well. we got a lot to talk to them about. Let's take a listen. Where I wanted to start with you guys is just the sort of this notion of, I mean, Square Enix external studios is kind of a big thing. So what, like, what does that mean? Like, what does an average day look like for each of you? I could start with John. There's no average day. That's a good starting point. But I mean, like, as you say, we, we work on a number of games with a number of great partners uh, and every day is unique. So we're just trying to help make great games with these great developers. Um, Lee and I sort of share the studio roles in, in two different ways. So I, I'm largely responsible for the brand and the sort of PR and the, the community side of, of, our, of our studio. And, and Lee's responsible for, for the development and the production piece. So, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit more about what we do? I mean, um, obviously, you know, it starts by trying to find some great games. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting starting point. You know, we, we, have, we have a long running relationship with a lot of great developers. We meet them regularly and we we like to discuss what, what, what they have and what, what we can do together. So we have that kind of speculative meeting and discussion quite regularly. And then we have long running partners that we work with for many years. You know, people right. like, you know, Avalanche Studios and, and Don't Die that you'll, you'll, you'll heard about, um, Deck Nine Games, and then more recently people can fly. So when we're working with studios, we like to work with them for, you know, as long as we can. And we have franchises that we try to build out with them. Uh, and that's, that's where the sort of partnership piece comes in. So, you know, you know, if we're not looking for new games, we're just trying to make the games that we're, you know, we're currently working on as, as great as they can be. And that's a long process today. You know, that might be yeah. four years, you know, and, and then even longer with post release content. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, you, you need to really get on well with the people you work with. And then as you go through each stage of development, there's just new challenges to overcome together. And there's, and there's um, sort of new pieces of work each time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just to sort of chip in on that, you know, I'd say we're we're quite a small sort of boutique studio, really, that sort of sits in the Square family. 
you know, obviously specialized working with independent developers. So, you know, we don't do a lot of games, but everyone we do is really important to the group. Um, and we've got a really strong team around myself and John of industry vets. So yeah, even on the, on the dev side, the average level of experience is over 20 years per person. So, you know, we get constantly excited about new ideas, talent, passion. You know, we, I guess you can't teach passion, right? So we really look for that when we're partnering with studios. And for example, when we had that first meeting, John, you're a member with the People Can Fly guys. We were asking them, why do you want to build this game? And they're like, well, it's the game I've always wanted to play that no one's ever made. You know, so, you know, they're really passionate about that. And that really resonates with us because, you know, we're investing in sort of people and ideas at the end of the day. So what, what got you guys into the games industry? Because you've both, you've both been at this for quite some time. Lee, I'll, I'll stick with you and start with you on that. Yeah, um, I, I was at college, actually, um, trying to get a bit of paper that said I knew how to use a computer. And uh, I saw this little, little job on the notice board to uh, go and work for this games company. And of course, I'd always played video games. And I was, I was only 18. And I was like, crikey, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go up there and see what it's all about. And uh, I went along with the rest of the entire college and um, had an interview with this tall bloke called Phil Harrison. And uh, he gave me a job. And uh, that was that, really. That was in 1990, so that's 30 years yeah. ago. So that, that's how I started. Um, you know, I was at Mindscape for 10 years. And, you know, the team was really small, but we got to work on really exciting stuff back in the time. I don't know if you remember all the Amiga stuff, Atari ST stuff, early PC stuff. We used to work with Origin at the time. So we, we did all the Ultima stuff, Wing Commander, all that stuff. We worked with the Bitmap Brothers, you know, doing Chaos Engine and Speedball and things like that. We worked with Sensible Software, doing Sensible Soccer, which you know, might not have been big in America, but it's huge in Europe. Um, yeah, it's really exciting times, and it's where I sort of started to learn my craft, really. And you know, I, was, I stuck it out for 10 years there, and then jumped over to SCI, which is a small sort of boutique London publisher, really. Yeah, they and, published uh, Carmageddon, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah, that's the one. That was slightly before my time. But um, yeah, I joined and uh, worked on the Conflict series of games, so starting with Conflict Desert Storm, which was actually a really big hit for you know, the small publisher. We had a UK number one. Um, number one in a few other territories as well and um, that did really well and then um, SCI it was a bit of a David and Goliath story really they brought IDOS and uh, you know the two teams sort of merged together and uh, I think that was uh, 2005 um, yeah and then uh, yeah, IDOS yeah, it was a d different beast altogether really because they had these sort of established internal studios with Crystal Dynamics and IO at the time and we started a new studio you know, in Montreal with IDOS, so it was, um, that was really exciting getting to work on, you know, Tomb Raiders and Hitmans and things like that. And um, I guess the sort of studio we are today really sort of took shape sort of back in sort of probably 10 years ago now, really, um, where we decided to sort of square would become more of a studio-led business. So each of the studios was sort of siloed and had their own sort of bit more sort of focus and direction and accountability ultimately. And that's when we sort of started working with you know some really exciting partners like rocksteady on you know batman and all the rest of it all the jc's and sleeping dogs and all the stuff you see now john how about you what's your what's your superhero origin story here how did how did you find yourself <laughs> in the games industry it's similarly as i care because leave i think i'm afraid but like i i i left university and applied for a job in the newspaper that's how far back it goes for a very small publisher who i hadn't even heard of at the time called interactive magic 
Um, you know, this is before PlayStation even was really around, it's PC days. So I worked on a, a civilization clone called Destiny. So I can say my very first game that I worked on was Destiny. <laughs> obviously not the one that you know today. But, like, you know, we were specializing in um, large-scale multiplayer gaming on dial-up. <laughs> so we had a game called Warbirds where we had, like, 64 biplanes fighting together in the sky, but on dial-up on PC. So you can imagine <laughs> the lag and the... What, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> not what could go wrong, exactly, yeah. So that was where things started out. Uh, that published, unfortunately, went bust. But I moved on to Virgin Interactive, and in Europe, they're working on all the Interplay games, all the Capcom games at the time, all the Hudson Soft games. So we had a really big portfolio, though, a really large publisher at the time, and stuff was doing marketing and PR for those guys. Stint at THQ, and then I joined IDOS in the time where, where you mentioned where SCI kind of brought them, and that merger happened. So, you know, that's where I first started working with Lee, really, we were working on, you know, games like Hitman and Tomb Raider and... And, and parts of that ilk um yeah and then it's like I say our, our, our past kind of crossed at that point we've been working in this external studios group now for how long is it now Lee? i mean we, we, we named it fairly recently it's always called yeah. the london studio for a while wasn't it yeah it's about 10 years and i think yeah the exciting thing which you'll probably remember john is um the thing we did different when we made that shift is we actually integrated brand and production and had those sort of brand managers and designers and producers sitting side by side. And it was really funny at the time because I can remember people going, oh, I can't wait to see what those brand people are doing, you know, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, right? And, you know, within a couple of weeks, yeah. there was so much respect for everyone, you know, it was because everybody could see what they did all day and uh, realise what a valuable cog they were in that whole machine, right? So it was, that's probably the best thing we've ever done. Yeah. Guys, I'm curious, uh, Square Enix is a really interesting company to me in the amongst the major games publishers in the world in that there's this there's this really interesting uh, it's almost two halves of a company, almost two separate companies between East and, and the Western side of things as far as the, even the kinds of games they make. So is is there like a friendly internal rivalry between the Eastern and Western? side of the businesses at all i mean obviously the east gets a lot of attention with final fantasy uh but but you know you guys do a, a, like a, a great variety of awesome stuff too so i'm kind of curious how how that is from the inside i think it's fair to say you know we're all on the same side you know um yeah. i wouldn't say there's any real rivalry at all because you know there's a lot of people in the business that get to work across all of those games you know whether it's the sales team or qa team or you know, sort of lawyers or finance people, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of overlap there. Um, I mean, the unit that John and I run, you know, we don't really, you know, touch those games so much, but we do work very closely with some people in Japan. You know, we talk about, you know, collaborating and things like that all the time, and we help each other where we can. Um, but yeah, I'd say that, I wouldn't say there's any rivalry at all. I think it's yeah, you know, as a business, it's probably one of the most supportive sort of businesses that I've ever worked for. I think you know they're always if we sort of sort of tap there's domain expertise there that we can tap into, for example, and we can right. sort of help get learnings from you know, things they've done that we haven't done, and it works both ways. You know, we're always helping those guys too, so it works well. Yeah, I'd, I'd also I'd kind of add that like I think. Um... One of the reasons why Square bought IDOS was to get some expertise in Western gaming. Sure. Um, and, and 
you know, not, not every gamer is the same around the world. So I think what's great about Square Enix is we, you know, we make, we try to make just great games for different groups of consumers. We don't, we don't just try to make one game for everyone, you know, it's not really the case. So, you know, it's, it's cool for us that there's, you know, in the Japan team making amazing games, you know, some of those amazing games cross over into the West, but huge games like Final Fantasy, but they also make quite a lot of games that are maybe primarily for the Japanese market. In the West, obviously, we're making games for the Western market primarily, but we'd, we'd love our hits to be, you know, played by Japanese gamers. That would be fantastic. And, um, you know, like you said, as, as a business, it's really supportive. It's really, you know, from the outside, it may look like two separate sides, but actually, internally, you know, it's, it's, it's quite opposite, actually. I think there's a lot of mutual respect between the two groups. And there's a real desire to have a, a sort of joined up company with, within Square Enix. Nice. That's great. Lee, I want to zero in with you for a second because uh, you founded Square Enix Montreal. And I'll tell you, th those developers are awesome. I've met a few of them over the years at various events. And uh, I just, I am a major fan of their Go games, their mobile titles, Hitman Go, uh, of course, Lara Croft Go, Deus Ex Go. So I kind of want to ask about where those came from because, I mean, I'm, I think of myself primarily as a as a console gamer, PC gamer, more of a like you know hardcore gamer. Uh, but but mobile games, mobile's a massive market. But I like I think a lot of core gamers, at least at least for me, I don't really pay attention to mobile games. But the Go games to me felt like a really awesome bridging of the gap between those two markets. So I'm kind of curious where those came from and and how you guys managed to successfully really fuse those two those two uh, disciplines as, as it were. Yeah, I mean, we set up the studio to become the sort of Western center of domain expertise for mobile gaming for Square. I mean, they had a really big sort of footprint in the sort of domestic Japanese market and they were finding a lot of success there. So, you know, they saw it as an opportunity for, you know, the Western business to have something similar. So, you know, we set up the studio under that premise and, you know, we were trying to think about, you know, where, where do you start? You know, what sort of game do you come out with? And, you know, we were looking at all of the IP within the group and we thought, you know, Hitman was the perfect IP to sort of do something with and to, to jump across into that mobile space. So that's sort of where it started with that remit. And it's actually sort of the Dan, one of our designers, came up with the concept, actually. And um, it was really cool because it is sort of, you know, we had this sort of concept art piece. And it's sort of like a a diorama from an architect, if you will, you yeah. know, and, and, and that sort of flowed through the game all, all the way, you know, it, it, it wasn't just, you know, just the concept piece, it kind of it stuck with the game and made it what it was. But yeah, you've got Hitman's a very clear, understandable world, I think. I mean, John's worked on it a lot as well. You know, you did a stint at IO in Copenhagen, didn't you? But um, so yeah, it all started from that, really. And, you know, obviously, most of the people in the team have got had this sort of AAA gaming sort of pedigree background. So, you know, there's some of those sort of tropes and familiarity sort of carried through into that mobile title. Did, uh, now did, did those games do well? Cause it's like, they are done. I mean, are, are they coming back? I, I have to, I'm obliged to ask. Well, yeah, I'll have to let Patrick answer that question for you. Cause he runs the Montreal studio now, but yeah, they did pretty well. I mean, you know, they won various, sort of apple design innovation awards and things like that you know best games they won, they won a lot of awards so yeah, critically they did really well i think you know paid for gaming on mobile is challenging 
it's difficult. You know, you, you ask someone to pay for a game that's the same price as a cup of coffee and then they're out. <laughs> you know, there's so much, you know, free to play is the dominant business model in that space now. So, you know, at the time it wasn't as dominant. So, you know, we, we had success in that space. Um, but I think, you know, going forward, it's, it's difficult for paid up games in a mobile space. So guys, when when uh, when IO speaking of Hitman wanted to leave, or when that sort of business divorce was happening, it seemed like Square handled it really gracefully. IO kept the Hitman IP. Can can you sort of share a lot of any insight into into that process from from on from on the inside? Because I feel like a lot of big publishers would not have handled that divorce, as it were, so amicably. Yeah, I mean. They were part of the Square Enix family. You know, I have been part of us for a good number of years. And we, we, I, used, I used to work at I on the Hitman brand there. And you, you're right. When, when it came to the, the um, use the word divorce, um, which, which is a tough word, it, it was more like we, we felt they had more opportunity going themselves. You know, they, they, they could put their own passion into the project. They could fund it themselves. And, and, and that just fit better with, with, with where we, we were at the time. I mean, that's so much more about that, obviously, than, than is already public. But it was amicable, and uh, and I'm actually really pleased to see that they've gone from strength to strength, really. You know, like it's great to see the game still still doing well, and yeah. it's great to see what they've got up to now. So I'm really pleased with them because you say it would have been a real shame just to sort of say, hey, you don't you don't fit into our plans anymore. Now we'll make it really difficult for you to continue doing the work that people love. I think that would be the worst case scenario for us. So I'm pleased. I'm pleased with the way it went. Yeah, there's some really talented people there. And, you know, the IP is amazing as well. You type Hitman into Google and everything's black and red. When uh, another one, Just Cause. So that seems like one of those games to me. It's, it's been around a while. Just Cause feels to me like one of those kind of always right on the cusp franchises that's never quite broken through as a like mega industry topping blockbuster. What's what do you guys see? How, what's the future of Just Cause? Is you know, it's it's such a physics-based playground. Does does the new console generation coming up afford a a new opportunity for a franchise like that? I mean, the, the new consoles probably certainly make it easier. <laughs> um, you know, it's when you, you think of Just Cause, right? And it's synonymous with large-scale destruction and massive open worlds and loads of physics, and it's all stuff that inherently has been really difficult to do in the past, isn't it? So, um, yeah, that's part of the reason why I think JC3 was so successful, really, because, you know, it's the first time we introduced that wingsuit and large-scale destruction. And, you know, we had a bit of an ethos on the game, really. If you poke it, it should react. So we had that huge, great big sandbox. I can remember watching YouTube videos, and there's people playing Jenga with, like, shipping containers tethered off helicopters and... Crazy stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it worked. Really, it worked really well for us, JC Three. I think it did really well for the group. Yeah, and also, I think we, we use the word physicalized destruction, and I'm not sure how much people really understand about that. But you know, our destruction isn't pre-canned. You know, it, there's actually a big physics simulation behind that, where you know we're calculating you know, where things collide and what they hit onto other things, and they spiral and move, and you can chain destruction as a result of that, which means the player's in control of the destruction. You know, it's not like if you blow up a building, it explodes in the same way every time. Like how you blow it up from one angle with one object, the explosion is unique. 
and that's really hard to do <laughs> in reality you know and it's, and it's a big source of the fun like at least said like the, the game's a huge playground it's a little sandbox and i think in that sense it's, it still remains quite unique in the open world space because open world games have become almost more choreographed to some extent like yeah you know like you're going through a huge story as you always are in games of course but you know you've been led from piece to piece with most games lead up to big finale with just cause it it was it was really hard to, to manage that because the player was really in control of what they did they could go anywhere do anything you know in mission design like you know when you're thinking about whatever that goal was in that mission we had to try to imagine how the player might turn up to that mission you know were they come in flying on the back of a stealth jet you know bail out of their wingsuit and drop loads of uh, grenades on it or would they be coming on foot in a car or, or what you know there's so many permutations to it um, but I think that's what made the game really fun. It still makes it fun today, and it still makes it really unique. And um, and it sells really well. I mean, like, loads of players find their way to just cause. And I mean, I think it might have been I can't remember with even an IGN quote, but like it was a, referred to once as a, sort of the chicken soup of gaming, which I, I know is a really weird quote, but I never, it never leaves my head because like the idea was when you're feeling a little down, just boot up just cause and have a bit of fun. <laughs> that whole idea of like. Yeah. You know, you eat chicken soup when you're feeling unwell, right? I mean, just causing one of those games, I think, when you boot it up, it's just there's always something unique going to happen, and it will be fun for you. You know, it doesn't get old. I can remember looking at the metrics on JC3 as well, where um, you know we, were, we hadn't been released that long, and there was just such a disproportionate amount of people that had spent over 500 hours in the game playing, wow. and it's like, it, and they're still finding things to do. Yeah, it's one of those games that's so big. And, you know, we, it's almost like we sit internally where we're kind of building a playground and it's kind of up to you how you have the fun in it. You know, we're just giving you the tools for fun and we're not really prescribing exactly what you've got to do to have fun. That's down to you, down to the player. So off you go, you know. If you like tethering, you know, gas canisters to cows and setting them off, you know, go knock yourself out. <laughs> Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Uh, now, Deus Ex. I know that's that's not an external studio game, but is it is it frustrating when a series is that good, but clearly doesn't sell as well as it deserves to? I mean, that was sort of publicly stated over time. Like, yeah, it just didn't, it never quite, quite broke through because it's it it just feels like Deus Ex always deserved better. I think it's quite difficult it's to not- comment on on you know the game from um, Idos. Montreal but I mean it's a great game right it's really high quality and I think it served that audience really really well I mean some things break out of those sort of primary audiences and go really really wide some things some things don't I think you know from everything I understand about that game it's 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 done right I mean it's it's not a GTA obviously but it's it's I think it's done well how about um how about life is strange that's actually a good one Mm -hmm. uh critical seemingly commercial hit for you guys how did where did that project come from because that's like i remember don nod had done remember me 
That's in right. the 360 PS3 era. Uh, yeah. And then... And then really, like, Life is Strange is completely different and has has really seemingly found a, a great audience and and really kept uh, modern episodic adventure gaming alive, particularly as, as Telltale has unfortunately fallen off and I'm sure they've resurrected. But but really, their Life is Strange has, has really uh, found a, a, a calling uh, you know, to, in the in the in the community. Yeah, there's a there's a funny story to that actually. I mean, I've known Oscar for a really long time, and you know, they they pitched "Remember Me" to us, and you know, we we didn't take it on. But um, you know, when they sort of came to the end of that, they had a meeting with Oscar. He came over from France to London, and um, he was sort of pitching some new titles to us, and and I think it was really resonating with us. We were like, yeah, you know, it's quite nice, but you know, it didn't feel like a good fit for the portfolio. Yeah, you know, you've got anything else? And he's like. No, oh, actually, we've got this one thing, and they it punted it around to quite a lot of places, actually, showing quite a few people, and no one was interested in it. And there's this really, really sort of quite crude, very early sort of prototype of Life is Strange. And we instantly fell in love with it. You know, we saw it as something new, something different, something people had never tried before. And we just felt that it was going to be an important game, you know, for the, for the industry as such, you know, because... It was just doing these things that no one had done before. And yeah, we pretty much signed it on the spot. We went to Paris to see the game and uh, to look a bit more deeply at the game. And I remember that first time, I suppose I'd seen it because I didn't see that pitch that Lee saw. And then there's a few of us, three or four of us went over to Paris and we sat in a meeting that don't nod. And then Michelle and I were all in line. But we, they pitched the game to us and showed it to us. And it, this playthrough was amazing. Like it was starting Chloe's version of the game. And uh, the version of the puzzle with the, um, the fridge where the pizza box falls off and you catch the key. But like this music played like the whole game, this lovely kind of indie music. It was a really emotional kind of scene. And at the end of the, the end of the demo, I remember like looking around and like it was really people were quite emotional from the from the presentation. Like, you know, just feeling the vibe of the game, feeling the music, seeing this content. And and you know, there's a lot of lot of you know, a lot of people in that room that like were clearly touched by this game. And and I haven't been in a presentation before where you could sense the emotion in the room quite so much. I think that really leans into what Lee said. It was quite a significant game. You could see that, like, typically games, I think what's, what we all love about games probably is killing things and blowing things up and saving the world. We've probably done that a thousand times over in video games. We love it, right? <laughs> we'll always be doing that. But actually, oh, yeah, video games, as video games grow and mature, and I think there's still a long way to go, I think, you know, we're an entertainment medium. And entertainment mediums elsewhere cover a lot more topics. There's a lot more ways to entertain people, killing people and blowing up things and saving the world, right? And I think that's where Life is Strange sort, sort of goes the way a little bit, right? It kind of suggests that you can tell great stories, you can have real emotion in games that I don't think we've always realised we can do. You know, we're, we're probably, if we're, I love this industry, we've all been there a long time. You know, that if there's one thing that's maybe failing in it is that we maybe are one genre, <laughs> the genre of action. You know, we do that continually. And, um, you know, interactive storytelling, I think, will continue to grow in gaming because people want to be immersed into worlds, right? They want to, they want to feel different emotions. You know, I think that's what Life Strange does for me, at least. Yeah, there aren't many, many games where make the hair stand up on the back of your neck or give you some kind of physical reaction, right? You know, the amount of fan mail we get for that game is probably surpasses everything else we do you know we, we see pictures of people crying when they're playing with it you know it's um it's really touching when we get that stuff as well it's um yeah, we, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, had guys, I've had guys come to me and say i've played games for ages and i've sucked my seven played games and my wife or my girlfriend or whatever has walked past and never really engaged 
and then suddenly they've walked past two or three times and then they've sat down and then they sat down and they've, and they've taken the pad and then they're playing and Life is Strange has been one of those almost gateway games for some people to yeah, play, you know, absolutely uh, involve you know loved ones and people that don't normally play games with them and I think that's listening to amazing stories like that real stories from real people it's great you know and then on a, on a flip side they're, they're hard on the stories you get stories of people have suffered some of the things that are in Life is Strange you know there's a lot of tough subjects broached there you know like you know there's a big you know, topic of racism in, in, in Life Strange 2, but we have like teenage suicide in Life Strange 1, you know, and a, and a whole other things in between. But like, you know, when games touch on stories that people can really relate to as well, I think that's really powerful. And again, we see that within our community quite regularly. Well, one of those, one of the action games, the 4,000 action games <laughs> that we still love them, is Sleeping Dogs. Uh, now, that yeah. one's interesting to me because. You guys picked that one up after another publisher dropped it and you kind of reshaped it into what it is now. So did you, did you guys see that as a, as like right away, yes, we can make this a hit and, and, or do you stop and go, well, what's, what's the catch because this other big publisher dropped it. So what, what, what's hiding under the cert? Like what's wrong here? Um, or did, I'm just sort of curious how that how that yeah. thought process goes when you're when you're looking at uh, at what was then true crime and it became Sleeping Dogs. I think I think there are two sort of aspects to that really. I mean, firstly, you know, you've got obviously you've got the game and the output, but secondly, you, you've got the team behind it. And UFG were an exceptional team. You know, there was a core kind of bunch of I think about twenty devs that had all worked together for fifteen years on various projects. So, you know, they, the left hand knew exactly what the right hand was doing at all times. You know, they knew who they could depend on, who they could count on for doing various things. They were a really talented team. So, you know, they, they were a great bunch. I mean, it's interesting actually, because um, they used to be a part of Black Box. So they used to sort of work on franchises like Need for Speed and, and things like that, right? So, you know, when they came to sort of building that city, they built a massive racetrack that was really great fun to ride around and race around. And then they, they dressed it up to make it look like Hong Kong. You know, whereas, you know, a, a lot of other devs would have sort of built this perfect model of Hong Kong, dropped cars in it, and hoped it was fun to race around, right? right. So, you know, they brought quite a lot of domain expertise to the project that you know, made it what it was. And you, know, you start feathering in all of those sort of nice environmental kills and things like that. And it was, um, it was really placed the game. They had a great, great animation system. Great combat design, which we knew a fair bit about as well, because we you know, come out the back of Batman and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's the two things: great team and the, the product had great potential. I mean, open world games are tough to make. But, you know, we've done a few of them, and you know, they, they had all the right ingredients to deliver another great game. And you know, with the collaboration, we managed to do that between us. John, is it is it rewarding? Is it really validating when? Ultimately, Sleeping Dogs does come out, and it's really well received. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, we didn't really believe in that game. I remember seeing the, the presentation, and it looked great. So yeah, you are right. But your opening question was like, do you worry about why someone's dropped it? I mean, you have to look closely at that, but like, you also have to go on your instincts a little bit initially and say, you know, how am I reacting to this demo? Is there something there? And then, then look deeper to make sure. There's not any huge problems there, which I think, you know, which there, yeah, the, there wasn't in this instance. But I mean, the, you know, I think Activision are a different publisher to us, and I think like they, 
had maybe worked on it a long time and for whatever reason decided they they they, they didn't want to continue with it. But um, I think the key with all of that, John, you know, when we're looking at things like that, you know, with with, with one eye you're sort of looking at what's been done, but with the other eye you're sort of looking at like what's left to do and what can it be, you know. So it is you got to have both eyes wide open on that part of it because. Um, you know, when you've got a big team and a big open world game, that can run and run and run. And if you're not careful, games like that just never get finished. You know, so you've got to have a, you know, a really strong team and a really clear vision of you know, where you need to land with something like that. Now, guys, you're not here for your help. You're, you're here to, we're promoting Outriders, which is out this holiday. Uh, that is the latest, biggest project that, that your studios are working on, Extra Square Enix External Studios. So that game's clearly got a lot of potential. It's you got a talented studio. You guys are talking a lot about about looking at the people as much as the project yeah. itself. People can fly has a good track record. It's hitting around a new console launch, uh, and it's also the kind of game that's very much in vogue right now. Sort of a lot of the core mechanics of it. So we don't obviously know if it's going to be a hit yet, but on paper, Outriders is looking real good. How much? How much of all that is? of what I just said is planned versus just good luck and good timing as far as having sort of the right game at the right time. It's totally planned, you know, from the start, you know, we, we knew exactly what we're getting into, right? You know, we wanted to do something that was different and fresh, right? And, you know, smashing together some of those sort of favorite aspects of video games, it gave us a, a, new, a new combination. I mean, obviously four years ago, we didn't know where the market would be today. Right. But we knew there'd be customers that wanted to play games like this, you know, because we were all sitting around talking about it, getting really excited about it and wanting to play it ourselves. Right. And we play games. So, you know, that, that was a really strong intention, I think, and gave us a good, good read on where, where we are and what we wanted to do. John? Uh, I remember as well. I remember, again, I was remember the, the first time you meet just do. But, you know, the team wanted to make basically Diablo with, with, with shooting. That was kind of their, their driving force. And I kind of thought, that just sounds really cool. You know, I think in between those four years, you know, obviously games have, other games have, have come that, 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 you know, in this genre. You know, but, but the, the team would never try, they weren't really aware of all of the games, you know. I mean, like, people talk a lot about things like Anthem, a lot about Destiny. They weren't really games that we were necessarily even really looking at four years ago. Like, really, the, the sole thought and focus was, if we bring some of that loot aspect of Diablo, and that kind of, Kind of want to play more experience, you know, and bring the great shooting that, that PCF have to bear, then this has something really special. Um, and the other thing I think we, we're all really focused on doing is just making great combat. I think as a studio, we've, we've always made great combat. I mean, you know, like Batman Arkham Asylum was all built around combat. You know, that was that was from, from this team here. You know, Sleeping Dogs has great combat in it. And I think when we looked at Outriders and we looked at PCF's ability to make great shooting, and we heard their ideas and their plans around the powers we just thought that's just going to be really good going to feel really good to play because we did get hands-on games so much faster and more aggressive you know you don't heal in cover like that, that whole idea of shooting guns running away hiding replaying health and coming back out again we don't have that at all like we, we have you get health from killing enemies you know you know like engaging in what you're there to do you, you'll you'll get extra health and powers aren't there to do once a level Powers are there to use all the time. Like, you know, why have a really awesome, ferocious, deadly power move if you're going to use it now and again? Like, you know, what we want to do 
is make the player feel like they are like a titan on the battlefield, able to like you know kill at will. And I, and I think that feeling is is something that is great. And we were you know like say we had this we had these plans four years ago. It's a long journey making games, and, you know. And PCF have yeah. grown a long a long way with that, and it's just really exciting for us to be close to release and having all those elements in play and feeling really good about what we've made. So I'm really excited for what, what we produce. I can't wait for the play. So I'm curious, you know, you because because I've talked about like uh, with Life is Strange, other publishers looked at it. Nobody, everybody kind of passed on it until you guys came around. With Outriders, did you have to bid against other publishers for that? Or or does People Can Fly come come to you guys first? Uh, I'm sort of curious of the the backstory there. I think Seb from PCF actually pinged you on LinkedIn or something, wasn't it? For a meeting at Gamescom, John, was it? Was that the initial sort of contact? So after Gamescom, yeah, we just contacted on, on LinkedIn and you know, he just they just split from Epic Games. And uh, I thought this is interesting. I wonder what they're up to, you know, and they obviously had that concept, you know, when we when we connected them, we went to see them. You know, that's when we learned that they kind of had this game that they wanted to make for some time. You know, whilst they're within Epic, they were love they love being there. They're obviously working on Unreal. They were working on Fortnite at the time. You know, and they were they were obviously well valued by Epic, but they really wanted to get back out into the wild again and make a game. You know, like Lee, like Lee said a few times in, in this in this chat, like when you meet people, you're you know you're imagining that relationship, and you're you want to you want to work with great people, and you want to believe in what they want to make because you're going to spend four or five years of your life with them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when exactly. you hear when you hear someone's prepared to do, you know, buy out from Epic, you know, a company like Epic, where you know they could have stayed there for a long time, they probably could have got rich there and been happy there. You know, they want to buy themselves out and really put themselves into the market again with a new IP. For me, that kind of piqued my interest at least because you know that's a project of passion and 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 they but, believe in it. Yeah, and yeah, I guess it's fair to say that that game has evolved a fair bit over time you know mm. it didn't start exactly like that you know and, and games really do right especially new ip and we've, we've got a pretty good track record of pushing out new ip as well we're not scared of it you know we, we know what to do with it and yeah it's changed uh, a lot i think <laughs> but you know where it lands today as john said on the sticks when you get hold of it it's um it's really strong it plays really really well and you know people certainly won't be disappointed with it and i'd say yeah, single player and multiplayer are both really strong because obviously there's a co-op co-op element. And when you're playing with your friends and you're combining the skills and the powers of all the, you know, these different guys, it's, it's really quite something. Well, I guess I want to end with you guys with this, and that's I'll, I'll give I want to give you a chance to kind of pitch directly to to people that because you know it does seem like new IP. It, there is a little bit of an extra challenge there of getting awareness for it and getting people. To actually try it, you know the the franchises they know they love they're familiar. But what is sort of the elevator pitch version of Outriders as as we're heading into this new console generation for for people to actually sit down and try it? Uh, I will I will leave you to uh, make a make that final pitch to get people to try this new IP. Over to marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say who's gonna go first. Who's gonna go first? Maybe we'll do one each. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I guess it's also worth saying. Oh, go on. Go on I, I was just going to say, you know, what, one thing we've found, um, especially now, people are quite price sensitive to content, right? And Outriders is a massive game. 
you know, and yeah, a lot of people don't really want to shell out 60 bucks for something that's eight hours long or something, do they? You know, I reckon we've got you reckon, like 35, 40 hours of fun in this, John, something like that. You know, it's, it's a big cool story, but, but 35 hours is a cool story. And then, you know, you can roll another character, you can play, you know, yeah, go around the yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think like an elevator pitch, you know, if you want a real fast paced um, shooter with, with lots of powers, a big story, a deep game, great lore, great universe, one you can play on your own or play with your friends, you know, that's Outriders. And like, don't be afraid of new IP. I think you're right. Like, gamers, I, I hear a lot, you know, we, we, follow, we follow other games, we the there. You see it, people are really kind of upset with the frequency of sequel. Oh, it's this game number seven, or it's whatever, whatever. Right? It's always that, right? But people love what they love, and they, and they, 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 they know that they get certain other qualities. That's probably why they buy them, because as you say, like, games cost a lot of money, right? So we respect that. So what we've what worked really hard to do with Outriders is make sure that we're going to bring a game. You, you've not had this, had this experience before. Once you play this game, like I say, it'd be really hard to go back to play other shooters. Um, and it offers real value. It's really deep, huge game there. And uh, and it, and it's fresh. Try it. There's a lot. There's a lot of depth for the customization as well in the, the player journey, isn't there? So, yeah, people will love it. I'm sure. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lee. Be sure to join us next month for another episode of IGN Unfiltered, where I will get to sit down with another wonderful person from somewhere in the games industry. There are always great developer stories to tell right here on IGN Unfiltered. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.